you know, we could wait around a couple of minutes for those people who are like, uh, oh, well, you know, I'll do this on libertarian time. But you know what? We've done we did enough libertarian time on Monday. So why don't we just go ahead and get into it? You know what I mean? As met, well, wait a second. Before I get into it, I should probably hit record on the video. Now that I am recording on the video, then I can go ahead and start that intro music over again. And then you guys can hear me say, you know, it's the uh, Surreal Politics member chat for August 2nd, 2023. Pleasure to be with all of you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Real politique in an unreal world. That's the uh, that's the that's the that's the catchphrase that I use. It agenda binary, yes, that includes all of you, whether you like it or not. But of course, if you're listening to me, you probably like that just fine. Welcome to this Wednesday members only video chat for Surreal Politics. Pleasure to be with all of you today. It's August 2nd, 2023, is the current year, Wednesday as implied. And uh, I am uh, I'm riding high on praise from my recent interview with my old friend Ian Freeman, which aired as episode 20 of Surreal Politics this past Monday. Uh, this renders news about the latest Trump indictment. How many are they now? Anybody keep track of these things? How many times the president going to get indicted? I don't know. It's just, you know, these things just every once in a while they indict a president. Who You know, who cares? Then, you know, there's a drag queen topping the Christian music charts. There's another, you know, downgrade to the U.S. credit rating because why not? You know, let me go ahead and turn that down a little bit. They're coming in a little hot, I think. And so, you know, there's the hack at that social media thing post. It's sort of uninteresting by comparison to me, but of course we could talk about that or whatever else is on your mind this evening because you guys make this all possible. You're the boss. You're, you're the ones who's uh, signing the checks, so to speak, so it's all up to you. But I do, uh, I have some thoughts on the prior content that I'll share with you. You know, some of the lessons from that interview were pretty subtle. They had to be because there was so much to get to. And Ian ended up giving me, you know, more, 90 minutes more than I had originally asked him for. And I also didn't want to turn the discussion into any sort of debate. I didn't want to challenge anything that he had to say. On uh, on recent member chats, you'll recall, um, I've sort of been, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, I've, I've talked about the prospects of commission sales as uh, as an avenue to success and actually as a useful political tool as well. Cold calling in particular, though rarely viewed as a glorious craft, uh, played a huge role in the success of Free Talk Live. To recap, or in case you haven't heard it yet, Ian's co-host, Mark Edge, the man uh, who is famous for saying, let's, uh, let's pull that up. What was, um, I have that, yeah, here it is. That true statement is racist. The, I'm, that, the, the, that true statement is racist guy, Mark Edge, 
So he served nine years in prison for second-degree murder, okay? And after he got out of prison, you might imagine that his life was not in a particularly good spot. But Mark uh, uh, managed to get his life back on track in part through commission sales. Before going into radio, Mark was working at a Gold's Gym. He was doing sales at the Gold's Gym, and he had been recruited by Free Talk Live's flagship station, and it was there that he and Ian met. When Clear Channel Communications let the two of them go, they began looking for a new station to host the show. And it didn't take long, but they were paying for the airtime, so they looked for yet another station. And by calling program managers at radio stations, they found one. Then they were called called by Genesis Communications, a radio syndicate. That's how Free Talk Live became a syndicated radio show with three stations to boast right from the start. But they didn't stop there. Ian made a daily routine of looking up the contact information for radio stations all over the country. He subscribed to industry newsletters and kept apprised of what was going on in the radio business. He attended conferences and shook hands with the players. And he smiled and dialed. He picked up the phone. He called these people up and he said, hey, I'm Ian. I do a show called Free Talk Live. Let me send you a demo. You know, do you need it? You need any content? No. All right. When should I follow back up with you? And he called these people on a daily basis for 18 years. That's how Free Talk Live became what it was. And through this, he managed to get the show on over 200 stations at the peak of their success. Throughout this, Mark Edge also smiled and dialed. This was discussed less during our interview, but I know something about it. Mark described this to me about 10 years ago when the show was still called Some Garbage Podcast about how he recovered from his nine-year prison stint through sales. I've been to Mark's house, and it's pretty nice, as a matter of fact. He has a wife and kids. He listens to other talk radio shows. He hears what the advertisers are, and then, in his words, he poaches them. Find someone who is doing radio ads, call them on the phone and say, hey, I'm in radio too. Come advertise with us. Functionally is what he says. I mean, it's not an exact quote. I'm sure he has a better pitch than that. But, you know, that's the idea. And one might note that their success was in some part due to getting lucky with Bitcoin. But this would be to overlook very much. It was not mere luck that this occurred. Opportunities pass us by all the time. The question is, are we positioned to take advantage of those opportunities when they come? Free Talk Live was in a position to stumble upon Bitcoin at the moment that they did because of their success in radio. A successful businessman and early adopter of Bitcoin by the name of Roger Veer knew his money would be put to good use in the hands of these already successful entrepreneurs. He saw over the years that this was indeed the case, and he continued to sponsor their work generously. I didn't make an issue of the amounts, but if you listen closely enough, you got some idea of the scale that Ian was working on in his Bitcoin business. This was many millions of dollars. Ian's tale is a tragic one. Nobody wants to be facing what he is facing, and I wouldn't want that for any of you quite clearly. But that was nearly 20 years after the show began that he ran into this trouble, nearly 25 years since Ian took an internship at a radio station. At, at like a local radio station that wasn't part of any major corporation. Perhaps 30 years since Mark found himself hiding a body with his friend. Easily 18 years since Ian started calling radio stations and asking for airtime. So are you down on your luck? 
you know, are you feeling like there's no hope for the future? Well, unless you're in a worse position than a man freshly released from prison with a murder on his record, I'd say there's at least one example of a guy who is in a worse spot than you who climbed out of that hole by dialing the phone. What might you accomplish in 18 years if you picked up the phone today? And uh, if this was the public show, and this is the point at which I would say the phone number, but we're not taking calls from the public tonight. I'm talking to all of you, and you guys don't have to dial the phone. All you got to do is unmute your mic, and I'll be happy to hear from you. So anybody want to chime in? Yeah, uh, hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you fine, buddy. Go ahead. So uh, I definitely think that one of the things you mentioned, uh, you know, picking up the phone and putting in the effort, I I think that's so important because, you know, now that I've gotten a little older, I've been able to see people who have done a lot of talking and a whole lot of nothing. And I've seen people that have actually made attempts at doing things and at some point or another, eventually figure it out and become successful. And, uh, you know, I've seen this both in politics, you know, from some of the people that I've known through some of the local uh, groups here. Uh, I've seen this, you know, professionally. And I think the one thing that really frustrates me, and I've been very blessed to actually have a couple of coworkers that were, let's say, quite a bit older, you know, 50s, 60s, that were just objectively complete losers. And they provided a great uh, template for something not to be. And the one thing these people all had in common was how they would always talk about doing something, but would never ever do it. And uh, I think that's uh, something that is really prevalent. Uh, you know, it's a mentality that everyone has, you know, everyone, it's a lot easier to say something than do something, but um, especially in politics and especially in uh, personal development, like, you know, getting fit, uh, it's really not that hard. Uh, you know, you put in the effort, you show up every day or almost every day, uh, you'll be fit. Uh, and I think uh, with politics, especially uh, just showing up, I think is really important because every time I go to a local event uh, for the local uh, Republican club event, let's say like I'm meeting interesting new people every time, then some of these people have, you know, some like legit positions in certain places. And it's, I think there has to be, you know, people should, people ought to get out of their comfort zone a little bit more. And I think it'd be really helpful uh, for everyone. And I know I've probably said this a million times, but you know, one of the things I liked about your interview uh, with Night Nation was you talked about how there's, there's such a real practical element of getting involved. And if you've just been behind Twitter for the last 10 years, like don't blame anyone but yourself for not having more of an influence in your local politics. Like there's plenty of people that are you know terrible politicians, but if they're not getting confronted at local events by what are supposed to be their own people, they're going to keep doing it. And I think that's something that you know would be really helpful. I mean, I, I you know not sure the number of listeners between you know you TRS and some of the other folks in the similar like mind, but if all of us you know if, if we were to say okay, there's a podcast freeze where no one does a show on this Thursday or this week, and everyone goes out and gets involved, and I want to hear like a report from every single person that does it. Not to say I, I want to miss a week of your show, but you know it would be so, like imagine if the thousands of people that listen to all these shows collectively just showed up at a local event this week, next week, it'd be huge. So, um, I, I think I might've missed the last word that you said, but I got the gist of what you were saying. And I, look, I'll even give you a recent example from, from me. Okay. Like I, um, I've been sort of like hesitant to go out and try to either book guests or get myself on other shows. And then as soon as I do that, it happens. Right. And it's like, you know, there's there's an aversion to, you know, going out and making initial contacts, right? And and I would argue that, you know, I have a I have a 
I have legitimate reasons for doing that. Like if I if I go and I'm like, please put me on your show, that's an indication that I'm not worth putting on your show, kind of. But like, there's um, even at that, it's like you you go out and you network, you go make connections with people, and then things start to happen, you know. And it's and and those things can be very significant. And once you once you feel like once you get the reward of the successful endeavor, it it becomes easier to do. And you know anybody who thinks that whatever it is that they're thinking about doing, they don't know how to do it. Well, like, of course you don't know how to do it because you're not doing it, okay? If people, if you think that, I mean, people who have been following me for a long time have seen my talents refined a great deal over the years, right? But even the people, when, when I hear people tell me I've been with you the whole time, people tell me I've been with you since some garbage podcast is what they say. Well, not so long ago, like I was I was actually looking for something else about myself on the Internet. And I stumbled across my blog talk radio dot com profile from from years prior to some garbage podcast. And I was like, oh, my God, like they still have the, it appeared that they still have the audio files from w- my first recordings were, were called Welcome to the Real World. Right. So like. The the unoriginality of that title should tell you everything you need to know about the quality of the content. It was awful. And then subsequent to that, I did something that was at least a little bit more creatively named called Brink of Bedlam. But I was still like I was still ignorant enough of media that I thought it would I thought it was I thought I would really improve the quality of the show by having a female co-host, put it that way. And like there's you know if you have a great female co-host, there's nothing wrong with that. You could, she can add to it, but the the idea that that dimension of it was important is something that I today look upon as like, um, as a as a silly. It, it it demonstrates an ignorance of the of the media, right? And so, like, you know, you could you can you I discern from those things. In any case, I don't know that all of you would, but I discern from those things what you would discover if you were to hear these recordings. And I contacted Blog Talk Radio. I was like, hey. You know, it looks like you have these old recordings of mine. I don't have any backups of them. If I could pay you and get them, like I will pay you. And they never, they haven't responded to me, but I'm going to try to do it because I think they're good for the historical record. Um, <clears throat> and so, I, uh, as a matter of fact, I also, uh, you know, part of the thing with sales obviously is like persuasion, right? And so, I had uh, after the interview. With Ian, I I sent them an email, and the email was titled Mark's Turn. And I actually just want to, like, sort of go through that thread with you a little bit because it's actually a, kind of an interesting study in in persuasion because—and also, here's a, here's a thing about sales. One of the things they say about sales is the easiest guy to sell is a salesman, right? Like, he's he's made himself vulnerable to, uh, to the tactics because— uh, because he listens to sales pitches and he understands them, okay? And so I send an email over and I say, uh, I'd, I'd be interested to get Mark on in the near future if he is up to it. I've copied both Ian at Domain and Mark at Domain since I might infer, but I'm not certain that this is a means by which to contact him directly. One of the things I have come to find very interesting and too often overlooked is how Free Talk Live is, in some sense, an excellent case study in the enormous potential of cold calling. We touched on this some last night, but time pressures and the greater gravity of issues specific to Ian prevented this from getting its due. When I had Mark on years ago, he had touched on this, but I wasn't able to fully appreciate it at the time. 
I think the show was actually still called Some Garbage Podcast back then, and so far as my performance was concerned, we might say it lived up to its name. When speaking to my audience about Path to Success Today, I often encourage them to go into commission sales. I specifically say variations of, if you can sell over the phone, you could do anything you want, anywhere you want. Free Talk Live demonstrates that this is only the slightest of exaggerations, I'd say. And the story of Mark managing to recover from a second-degree murder conviction via this route powerfully demonstrates its redemptive potential. Thank you, Ian, for a great one in the box. Thank you, Mark, in advance for your consideration. Now, I will not—I'm um, not going to read to you precisely what Mark said, but Mark had respectfully declined. I think I can fairly relay to you. Um, he was—and uh, and that— is all I will say about Mark's response, because I have not gotten Mark's permission to say anything else about it. But when when he came back to me, I said, okay, um, Mark's a guy who could be persuaded, perhaps. And so he declines, and, I, and uh, um, you'll, as you would be able to infer from what I'm about to read to you in my response, you know, he's concerned about his branding, okay? He doesn't want to be seen as helping to monetize a white nationalist podcast, essentially. And so... That was his aversion. And so I reply to him and I say, I fully understand and respect your concern, Mark. If you haven't already had the opportunity to watch my conversation with Ian, I'd invite you to do so and reconsider. But I would certainly still understand if, after doing so, you came to the same conclusion. I'll be happy to speak with you privately, of course, but this will not suit the purpose I've contacted you about. I've done a good deal of reading on the topic of sales, and I can speak to it intelligently on my own at present. There are no shortage of engaging potential podcast guests who can come on the show to discuss the topic. The goal here was to continue articulating the history of Free Talk Live with an authoritative source and work with the— I'm sorry— Uh, uh, and work in the sales and cold calling components as a dimension of that history. If not with me, I think it would be worth you jotting this down or doing such a recording with another talented interviewer who understands the subject matter. I'm not using this, I'm not using history in the sense of your past. I'm talking about history, history, as in this thing that is of historical significance that ought to be part of the historical record. I would suggest that you find someone suitable who takes it that seriously and produce the content we would have produced uh, were it not for your branding concerns. And uh, I can say that Mark has, on account of my describing his input as important to the historical record, um, been persuaded uh, to accept my invitation. All right. And, you know, I'll just point out a couple of intentions. I've already closed the window, so I can't go through it line by line. But, you know, okay, you know, the, the, the persuasive elements here are, of course, I understand your concern. I respect your concern. And here's something that you might do, which you might have done anyway, which might cause you to reconsider your position. All right. And then if after doing that, you you come to the same conclusion, then I'll totally still understand and respect that. Uh, but, you know, here's a here's a bunch of praise for you, and here uh, is why it would be in your best interest to do this thing that I think is great. And if you don't want to do it with me, well, then you should definitely still do it, okay? So you're going to do this thing. You might do it with somebody else, but, you know, I might be the guy to do it. And uh, the, uh, the response I got was... Uh, he was uh, he was honored that the that I would consider um, what Free Talk Live had done as historical and and he understood that to be true by the way which I did this is not mere flattery you know 
I said this to Ian before I brought him on the show. I said, you know, look, something that occurred to me when I was preparing, I, like I wanted to put into the show description. I, I didn't really have it in mind to do the interview in the format that we did it. I, I just I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. But as I was preparing for it, I was like, let me find like a concise history of Free Talk Live in order to make a show description for today. And I realized one does not exist. And I said, well, that's that's no good at all. Like that, like actually that has to be done. And so, you know, I uh, I was like, hey, you know, there's obviously a lot for us to talk about, but I think I need to I need to articulate the history of Free Talk Live. I told Ian this the, the day of the show. And so that's sort of the, the the angle that it ended up taking. You know, he's he's had this situation where, you know, he got in he got in a lot of legal trouble and that sort of occupied the last hour of the show. But most of what we went through was sort of like he gets a job, you know, an internship at a radio station, meets Mark, they start doing a show, and then they start dialing the phone and getting radio stations, and next thing you know, you know. It's a it's a it's a very unique story and it's a and it's a success story, you know, and so uh, it's something that I think uh, should certainly be recorded uh, as a piece of history. And I'm I'm very happy to have played a some role in being able to do that. And so and we're going to have so I think sometime next Mark uh, sometime next month, Mark is going to come on and we're going to talk more about the sales angle. And I might you know what I might endeavor to do is publish the episode of some, I might read, and I'm looking at Dan's uh, icon in the chat here, and I'm realizing that I failed to republish something that I said I would during Night Nation Review, which is the the Vice News interview unedited, which I should have to do that tonight. Um, But maybe I'll also republish my interview with Mark Edge from Some Garbage Podcast, which will demonstrate, um, which will give you a hint at what I'm talking about, that like he's, you know, he's, he's, uh, uh, he's a really engaging guy who understands sales and persuasion and he understands like a lot. He's read a lot of sales literature, so he understands this stuff very well and, and sort of like historical things about sales. As a matter of fact, if you ever heard me talk as my, I think on the episode of radical agenda, I titled persuasive. I think I talked about the story of like how diamonds became <laughs> so valuable. And I, I actually heard that story for the first time from Mark Edge. He told that to me on some garbage podcast and I've and it's stuck with me ever since, you know. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. Anybody else got anything? You, you know, you could be off topic. I'm not trying to uh, uh, just talk about this. Anybody has anything else on their minds is fine, too. One one more thing, yeah. I just want to say, you know, I, I think the sales angle is really important for development. I, I feel like as someone growing up, there's two jobs they really ought to have. Uh, one of them is working at a restaurant, being a waiter. Uh, something that I think is just really important for just dealing with interpersonal skills and also just learning a little bit about how physical businesses run and how to work with people. You know, you got the kitchen, you got the hostess, you got the manager, you have other staff, you have the customer. That's a very I think- good point, by the way. I just I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's smart. Yeah, it's. I, I think not only does it give you an appreciation for what actually goes into being a, a service worker in some of these regards, but you learn how to do so many things interpersonally. And I think the other one to kind of hype what you were saying earlier, but you know the sales. And I think one of the things with cold calling, especially with a lot of these. Uh, let's say like intern level positions, which is really how I guess I could say I got into sales, you know, unpaid internship uh, where I didn't earn any commission until I got my insurance license. Right. So, you know, I think 
one of the things that you kind of learn is a little bit of persistence, right? You know, you're going to call, you know, in a day, let's say if you're actually doing what you're supposed to, instead of just pretending to work, which I'm not going to lie, a lot of people do because, you know, the rejection gets crushing, but you have to eventually learn how to suck it up and keep pushing forward. And I think that's probably how to tell right off the bat who's going to actually kind of be successful in life or it's how you can train yourself to be successful is where you're just going to keep dialing that phone knowing full well that there's a 90% chance that the person might swear at you. Right. And I, I think learning that persistence and learning how to kind of be outcome independent and not worry so much about something like failing uh, and having the greater goal in mind is important. So I think those things are both, you know, really important for personal development and, uh, that's, I think, just really important to me. And I wouldn't actually say that from a career standpoint that focusing nothing on you know outbound or commission sales is always the smartest thing. I think uh, there's a lot of more cushy, lazy jobs you can get in corporate roles uh, that don't require such actual production of val- – that don't actually require you to do a whole lot. Right. And I think uh, strategically, uh, if you want a cushy, high paying job where you don't do very much, it's probably the last thing to go in. And I don't think that would be good advice for the average person to get into. But people that can do it really well can. And I think uh, like you're saying before, you know, if this guy came out as a murderer, but he can set appointments or close things. Right. Uh, Very few companies uh, that at least aren't big enough to have an explicit policy against something like this are probably going to still be all over him if he's successful. If he's producing, they're not going to care. Like I've known plenty of people that have been accused of horrible things by the company or by other people and the company because they're such a top producer they will not let go of them it's kind of like being on the football team in high school where you know you can't get yourself in trouble because the the teachers you know want you to succeed and you know that's that yeah that you know in sales that's the thing right so in sales one of the things i mentioned on i forget if it was last week or two weeks ago i think you know you can't help but make what you're worth in commission sales, right? Like you're either produ- you're at you're either making the sales or you're not, and and it will first of all, you know, it's it is. I think that you're absolutely right that there are higher things than that one can aspire to than commission sales. That's certainly true, um, but at some point in the course of your career, doing that is like it's one of those things where there's a definite measure of success, right? And the, and that measurement is directly reflected in your paycheck. And that's a huge, you know, that's a huge thing for, um, for understanding your own talents. And, and by the way, I mean, there's people out there, you know, who can uh, uh, bench 250 pounds and have 140 IQ that probably are no good at sales. I mean, it's just, you know, some people are better at this than others. I have no doubt, but it, it is, uh, it will let you know something about your your capacities to do it, I would say. And uh, and it says a lot to employers in the future. You know, if you can if you can sell, you know, like if you if you've been in a successful sales role, that looks very good on a resume, even if you're going into a non-sales role, because it, it speaks to your it speaks to your ability to make money. Right. And if you're like, oh, well, I was a successful um, commission salesperson, and now I want to work for you. You know, it, it, it speaks to your confidence to provide value to the role. Like, like the, uh, a, a one, a commission salesperson knows above all that they have to provide value to their employer because in a commission sales role, like you're not making any money unless you unless you are providing value to your employer. And I also think that it was a really wise thing that you said about you know working in a restaurant, which I've done. I was, and I was better at working in a restaurant than I was cold calling. Let's say that. Um, 
I I like I I I had so much trouble getting over my aversion to calling strangers on the phone that I I did not do very well with that. Um, but you know, you do learn a lot of things working in a restaurant, and and you and it forces you to be well rounded, um, including that you know all important feature of you know knowing how to deal with customers and that sort of thing because. If you can't deal with customers, you know, you're going to have you're going to have problems throughout your career, no matter where you go. Unless you're a programmer, just learn to code. You'll be fine. Um, anybody, uh, anybody else want to chime in? Real quick. Go ahead. Yeah, real quick. One other thing I think is super important to uh, point out. And I and I almost feel like it's redundant to even mention this, but I, I, I guess as I'm meeting people like some of these uh, co-workers I've said that are, are, you know, losers, but you know, you have to invest in the future. Um, and this is just one of these things where I feel like um, it's, you know, a lot harder for certain people in certain circumstances, you know, I'm looking in your direction where you're not getting a stable paycheck with a 401k kind of thing. But I think, you know, one thing people really ought to think about is, um, you know, I was talking to my coworker about this and, you know, he's getting to be in his sixties. And when I look at the pot he has to piss in, it's non-existent. And, you know, one thing I feel like worth pointing out is like he didn't understand the idea of compound interest. And this is not something that I think you need to be a genius to understand. But, you know, if you put $100 a week into a brokerage account in 30 years, that $100 a week, you, you will have paid in, you know, about 150 grand or so. And at the end, you'll have a million dollars. You'll have earned about 800 grand in interest. Now, the thing is, is you're putting in 150 and you're getting a million dollars. So the idea that you know, any of us should ever be hurting by the time we're like 60 or 70 is laughable. Um, and I think we have to think about, you know, the future and, hey, look, we're kind of all young guys right now with not a lot of disposable income. Um, but if we plan smart, we can be a lot more powerful in not much more than a couple decades. I mean, imagine if each one of us is sitting here and instead of having, you know, maybe five digits in our bank account or four digits in our bank account or even, you know, six digits in our bank account, imagine if we're all sitting here with seven or maybe even eight. Uh, imagine how much, you know, we could actually do. And uh, another thing too is I, uh, you know, on an activism note, I think, you know, if, if you want to be broke and, uh, you know, creative with your activism, I was telling Chris about these earlier, but there's these things called these little NFC stickers. And basically the whole idea is you can program these things and people tap them with their phones and kind of like a QR code, it can send people to apps, it can send people to websites, it, it can send people to YouTube or whatnot. It could, you know, initiate a FaceTime call, you could add a contact. But I think one of the things that I, I think we all ought to consider is, you know, you can go out and buy hundreds of these for a couple cents each one, you know, maybe 25 cents each. And I mean, you want to talk about ways to like maybe make some money. Uh, how about, you know, putting a sticker in a place where people might be thinking about a, rel a relevant product and it takes them to an affiliate link? Or, you know, how about, you know, there's a, something going on, you know, there's, you know, graffiti something and you could have like a tap me thing here and it's some kind of like anti-graffiti, you know, propaganda of some sort. You know, there's so many things, you know, you touch something and it's a meme, it's not something and it's a YouTube video. Uh, and I think these things are things that we can have a lot of fun with on the cheap and unlike a QR code that, you know, requires the thing stay clean, people pull out their phone and point at it. All they have to do is tap it with their phone. And uh, I think that's one of these things where even from a business standpoint, if you want to open a business, there's this thousand things you can 
sell to businesses to use these to make some money. And uh, just another random note, but hey, I hope everyone could uh, make something of it. That You know what? Like, uh, as you know, uh, for the sake of others, we've been talking about this privately and I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me to do it with affiliate links. Like I'm, I'm thinking of this like, okay, I can direct people to my stuff. That's actually pretty smart that like, you know, I have, I've I've built a lot of affiliate relationships since I've been since I've been out. I lost like nearly all of them when I got, you know, in in 2017 and now I'm building up new ones. But it never it it had not occurred to me to say like, oh, you know, here's, you know, put something there. Uh near field sensors in these stickers. Yeah, NFC stickers, near field communications, that's what he's talking about. Um and so like, yeah, it's basically like an RFID in a sticker. And they're and apparently they're really cheap. And uh, he was he was showing me these things. And I was like, that's genius. You know, when I started, uh, I had started right before they arrested me. As a matter of fact, I was basically like I burned like hundreds and hundreds of like best of the radical agenda CDs. And I would basically take them with me everywhere I went. And I was and I was like dropping them in conspicuous places. And I got like kicked out of a couple of shopping malls for doing this. And And I had a bunch of people like. I was I was dating a girl who lived in Maryland and I was driving up and down, you know, the interstate highway and I'd like stop at every interstate and <clears throat> sort of litter with my radical agenda CDs. And I had people looking at me funny as I was conspicuously placing these things all over the country. And uh, and it occurs to me that like, wow, these are, you know, these are inconspicuous, do not um, have a great deal of material cost and obviously have the potential to be reused many, many, many times and are not, and are not so likely as say, like I did also some QR codes, but they, um, uh, obviously are not good anymore because ChristopherCantwell.com is gone. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that the, the NFC stickers I, I think are awesome and I'm really looking forward to experimenting with them. Um, any, uh, anything else, Tony or, oh, uh, Roland just, uh, um, unmuted his mic. What's going on, buddy? Hey, uh, good evening, Chris. I just wanted to add one, uh, one thing with any discussion of sales, it's important to note, and it's, it's apparent to anybody that's been in sales, but it may not be apparent to those who, who aren't in a sales job that the longer you stay in that role, especially if you stay in the same geographical area, the more successful you're going to be. Um, that works a couple of different ways. One, of course, you learn, uh, you get better with the interactions and that sort of thing. You develop your talent. But secondly, um, referrals, um, your book of business, and then you, you just get known in that community as, you know, whatever you do. If you're a car salesman, if you're a banker, if you're an investment guy, um, whatever your product is, you get to know that. And in my own career, um, uh, I've, I've definitely noticed that it's much easier now that I've been, you know, doing the same thing for nearly 20 years um, because you get repeat customers, they tell their friends and it just, so if you stick at it, stick with it, it, it pays off like so many things in life. It's very difficult at the beginning but it does get easier the longer you stick with it. Yeah, I um, uh, that's definitely true. I mean, when you build up a reputation as you know uh, as being a qualified professional in your field, 
um, especially if you're dealing with a given market, then, you know, then then the people within that market obviously come to know your reputation. And if you're in um, and if you're in a direct sales role, um, then, you know, or in any position where your your sales, you, you continue to get the revenue from your customer as he continues to come back to your to your uh, to your company in any case. Um, that is obviously a thing that, you, you know, if, if you're, if you're a commission sales guy and you work, I'll give you the example. I used to work at this, um, company that did low voltage cabling. Okay. And the guy, his name was Lou Polina. And, um, I had to work very closely with Lou because I was the operations manager and he was the outside sales guy. And so like he would go and he basically visit construction sites. He'd go meet, um, uh, uh, people in the trades, he'd go to conferences. He was always, you know, networking, meeting people in, in that he could sell our products and services to. And he would go and, you know, try to, um, drum up the business. And then it was my job to actually make the estimates for, for the job. And so I would have to go with Lou. Lou would frequently accompany me to the initial, um, uh, the, at least for the first estimate, and of course, if there was any sort of problem, it was me or Lou that they would get in contact with, right? And so, uh, they, if they if they tried me, and I couldn't give them what they wanted, then they'd get Lou on the phone because you know Lou is the commission sales guy and has, shall we say, greater incentive to make them spend money. And it would happen sometimes that I'd be like, "Look, you know, it is what it is, guy. I mean, you know, here's here's what you needed. Here's what it is." And then they'd go to Lou, and Lou would be like, "What can we do about this?" And I'd be like, "Well, you know, here's here's the circumstances that caused me to give them this estimate." And then he'd go over my head, you know, to like the CEO of the company, and they say, "Okay, well, let's see what we can shave off here and shave off there," and um, you know, you become you know an integral part of the interactions between the customer and the and and the corporation, and uh, in and in Lou's case. If he booked a sale, even even if there was no more communication between him and the and the customer, that was his customer. Okay, so like he would get all the revenues from, uh, not all the revenues, obviously, but he would continue to get his sales commission on subsequent deals that they did with the company. But of course, if Lou left the company and was no longer receiving a paycheck from the company, they were not going to continue to pay him, you know, his sales commissions. And so, um, it is uh, it is very good in an instant like that that you know, that you're, you're remaining in the, in the same position for a longer period of time. One other uh, question, um, Chris, if you have time. Yeah, of course, please. Yeah, uh, so I caught your interview with uh, Ian Freeman and it was um, it, like, like when you're at your best, it's entertaining, it's informative and it's, uh, it's moving. And that, that was certainly the case Thank you. Uh, with that. It was, it was a great, uh, great show episode. Uh, it's apparent that you guys have been friends uh, and continue to be friends, even though uh, you have vastly different political opinions. Um, so much so th that, you know, it um, caused, you know, your separation. Uh, so uh, could you speak to uh, your separation with Free Talk Live? And if I remember correctly, it's because, you know, you you were listening to Molyneux and kind of started uh, down the 
rabbit hole of racial differences and um you kind of defended him and that sort of thing and that led to your ouster if if i remember correct correct me if i'm wrong speak to your that you know your ouster your split with them but then you know you obviously stayed on good terms did they ever acknowledge that hey you're really right but we had to make this decision because uh you know, of pressure or what have you. Well, I, I'm very glad that you asked that question because, you know, that was obviously a very relevant part of the history. But the last thing that I wanted to do during the course of that was, you know, do anything that could, you know, be perceived as an argument. OK, I really just wanted to have a very smooth conversation with Ian, but this was a very important part of the story. And so um I'll I'll recap it. I, I I'll recap it as if nobody's heard it because there might be people here who haven't. Okay, so I was I was brought on to Free Talk Live. I originally moved to New Hampshire in 2012. I I left New Hampshire for a period of time and then I came back and not so and I and while I was gone from New Hampshire is when I started some garbage podcast. When I came back to New Hampshire. Um, I was, after some time, invited to be a regular co-host on Free Talk Live on this nationally syndicated broadcast station. I, I think that they were doing 160 radio stations at the time that I was host uh, as co-hosting with them. And um, I did not make a great deal of money, but they did pay me to do this. So I was literally a professional radio host. And um, at some point in the course of this, not so long into it, as it were, Stefan Molyneux makes a video titled Race and IQ. And he goes through essentially the substance of Charles Murray's um, The Bell Curve. Let me just adjust my um, mixer here real quick. Um, and so when this happens, Stefan Molyneux releases this video about race and IQ. And somebody brings this video to the Facebook, uh, the Facebook group of Free Talk Live. And they say, Stefan Molyneux is a racist now. And I watched the video. This was how I got introduced to the video, as it were. And I watched it. And like what I saw was just it just made sense. Right. It was like, OK, there's an IQ disparity. IQ is actually a genetic, uh, a largely inheritable genetic trait. OK. And if you don't know already, I think most of the people here probably do. You know, IQ is something that, you know, you're brain is a bodily organ like any other, and it's, you know, delivered to you through the DNA of your parents. And so certain qualities about it are um, are meaningful. Uh, and, you know, your your IQ is not something that you can increase simply by reading books. You can increase your knowledge, but you might not be able to. Um, it, it would be it, there's not much that you can do to increase beyond a certain degree of genetic potential. Oh, here's the phrase I like. Human beings are born with a certain degree of genetic potential beyond which no environmental factor can improve. That's sort of what you take away from it, okay? Now, you can impact with environment IQ in a downward direction infinitely. But you can put a bullet through somebody's brain. That's an environmental impact that will turn it off, okay? So if you're, if you're born and your parents feed you nothing but Rice Krispies and keep you in the closet all day, you know, they'll negatively impact your— IQ, obviously. So that's an environmental impact on your IQ. But you're born with a certain degree of genetic potential beyond which no environmental factor can improve. And without going into all of the details, due to that genetic component, you know, a, a disparity emerges amongst racial groups and that that has relevant impacts to social situations, not the least of which is crime statistics and and 
um, and uh, you know socioeconomic status, say, okay? And this was done in response to sort of like all this hysteria that had happened about Michael Brown. And uh, and so, like, I I saw this video and I said, well, that just makes sense. Right. I mean, this is obvious. This matches with my experience. I'm from New York. You know, I have seen um, a, a bunch of people. Yeah, I've known a lot of people and it matches with my experience. Say. And so, um, Matt, if you wouldn't mind muting your mic, I'll, br- I'll bring you on as soon as okay. as soon as I'm done. I, I, I see you waiting there and I'll and I'll bring you in. OK, um, the um, and so as I watch this, I just said, OK, well, this isn't this is an honest intellectual inquiry. And my understanding of racism is that it's untrue and it's irrational. And so you should not call Stefan Molyneux a racist for saying something that is obviously true and obviously not done maliciously. And they all told me, no. You know, he's saying that, you know, there's a that there's a, 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 a difference between racial groups in a socially valued category and that it's genetic in origin. And that is the definition of racism. And I was like, are you you know, th- and that's where this famous clip comes from that we've played so many times. That true statement is racist. We make fun of this all of the time on the radical agenda or we used to. I haven't done it enough recently. But that's Mark Edge saying that true statement is racist. And like, so so that wasn't actually what got me fired from Free Talk Live, in all fairness to them. So like they suspended me. They wanted me to apologize. And I said, well, I'm not going to apologize. Like, it's true. OK, so like I'm not going to apologize for telling the truth. And they suspended me from Free Talk Live, you know, pending, you know, trying to decide what they were going to do, because you have to understand that. You know, Free Talk Live is a broadcast radio show. Okay, like they face pressures that you know. I worry about getting deplatformed on you know on the internet. You talk, you think like getting deplatformed on social media is easy to do. Like you could get kicked off of radio stations very easily. Okay, and you have advertisers. Advertisers will drop you for next to nothing. So like they had you know a very important decision to make, and they they suspended me from the show while they made it. And in the course of doing that, you know. They earn themselves to write to say, well, you know, he said this thing and we suspended him for it. And now that he has, you know, served his suspension, we consider the matter resolved. Okay, that's a you know, it's a thing that a corporation will do, generally speaking. Um, And so they they did bring me back on after that. Um, Subsequent to this, I was on Twitter and on Twitter, somebody said I I made a commentary that I, I noticed at some point, like, Fox News was featuring an, a very conspicuous number of female hosts, and it became obvious to me that what they were doing was they were responding to Democrat criticism that they're like a sexist, you know, operation and all this stuff. And so, like, it was obvious to me that they were they were placating to these Democrat demands. And so, like, it was annoying to me one morning I, I saw like these. They do the show called Outnumbered, which is just dumb. It's like it, they and they and they and they do this hashtag one lucky guy because they're a bunch of degenerates, right? They have a bunch of women, and then there's one guy who comes in and sits on the couch with them, and like they're talking about foreign policy. And I I went on Twitter and I was like, I don't want to hear a bunch of women tell me to how to wage war, okay? And this was my commentary on Twitter, and a and and this black activist here responded to me and he called me a misogynist, and so like I thought it would be very funny to respond to him. In a dismissive manner, okay? And, you know, I I had this idea in my head, like, okay, if you think my sexism is bad, wait till you get a hold of my racism. And I responded to him with a three-word answer 
that I will not say on Surreal Politiques, but the first two words were shut up, and the other one is a racial epithet, okay? And so I said, shut up, N-word, and that was my three-word response to this activist. Now, Free Talk Live came to me and said, look, you know, you know, we want to, like, have your back, but, like, calling people the N-word on social media is sort of like this, it, if we have a line, we've got to draw it there, right? And, and I'm like, well, I, I understand your position. He's like, if you apologize, you know, we'll get over it. And I'm like, but I'm not sorry. That would be dishonest, you know? They're like, but it's racist to call people the N-word. I'm like, yeah, that was kind of the idea, you know? And so, you know, they they suspended it and ultimately fired me for that. Now, you know, I didn't, I was not mad at them for this, okay? Like, I was never mad at them for that, all right? And I totally understood the position that they were in because if they, you know, if I was going on the radio and saying that stuff, like, it, w- it would ruin the entire thing really fast. Like, you know, it, it was completely understood that I couldn't do that on the radio. And, you know, the things that you do off the air are not completely irrelevant. So what would have certainly happened if I stayed on the radio is every single radio station that Free Talk Live was on would have gotten a phone call. And they said the, the, co- the one of the co-hosts is a racist who calls people the N-word, okay? And that would have absolutely resulted in them losing radio stations. They would have, every single advertiser would have gotten a phone call, hey, do you know that you're advertising on a racist radio show? And then they would have lost their advertisers. And then they'd be out of business, and all of the efforts that they were able to put forward would have been destroyed. And so because I did not want those efforts to be destroyed, I completely understood their position. And, like, you know, there was a conversation that we had that, I, I, you know, a little, I, I don't know if I've disclosed this before, but like we discussed this that like, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm obviously going to have to talk smack on, the, on my show about you or whatever. And, you know, and, and they were still allowing me to call in notably. Okay. So like, you know, it, it, like I was still calling in to free talk live. I just couldn't be a co-host. Okay. So like there were clips I would call into free talk live and I'd sort of like needle them about race and watch them dance around about it. And, you know, they're, you know, they'd be terrified to try to discuss the subject and then we'd play them on the radical agenda and we'd all have a good laugh about it. Okay. And so like, you know, I don't think that they ever acknowledged that they were wrong and I never asked them to because strictly from a business perspective, I thought what they did was entirely appropriate. Okay. So like, I don't think that what they did was wrong. I do think they're wrong politically because like they they will not like I don't I don't know how to word this precisely because, you know, there's not a they don't they don't say that I'm saying false things. If you listen to them closely enough, like whenever I've had this conversation with them, they say things like, well, why does that matter? And, you know, what like this does not register on my scale of values or whatever. Okay. Like they have, they do not answer the questions and I don't needle them about it because you know, why would I want to try to destroy their business? Okay. Because answering those questions would destroy their business. And so like, I don't, I don't try to get that out of them. The only thing I've ever done is sort of like, I, I, I find it funny to sort of needle them about it because, because they don't answer the questions. And so, you know, Ian says things like, I don't see color. There was, I have a really great, as a matter of fact, I have a great, I have a great drop here from Ian. I'll try to find it real quick. Um, <clears throat> you know, what was, um, not that, da, 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 da. I have too many, 
<clears throat> you know, I got this um, this different soundboard application that I used to use on the show. And one of the great things about it is that I have so many different, like, um, I have so many different drops, but they are, uh, when you have so many of them, you're trying to memorize uh, their placement all over the place is uh, challenging in the extreme. The, where is it? Come on. No, it's not up here. It's got to be down towards the bottom. Upright in those winds, Alan Dershowitz, if you cared about fairness, Farrakhan, people you can't talk to, scientists may have a power, Dwayne Dixon, Booty John, Nita Pinochet, Trump radical agenda, ballot of Tony Tarleton, infiltrated by conservatives. This is pretty funny. It's telling that the Libertarian Party has a libertarian, has a radical caucus, like what they call the Libertarian Caucus and the Libertarian Party. Yeah, it Party. tells you that the Libertarian Party's been infiltrated by a bunch of conservatives. Yeah, that's not the one I'm looking for, but it's still pretty funny. Um, well, I'm not finding it right now, but in any case, you know, they, they, you know, I respect them professionally, okay? They're good at what they do. And they've managed to do something that, you know, is really actually pretty impressive. And so I don't, I don't take issue with them about it. And and I've ne- and they don't, they don't say I'm stupid. They don't say that I'm evil. You know, they've said like, you know, I disagree with what he says. And you know, you might think that his views are despicable, but yada yada yada. And you know, that's that's sort of my perception of it. And before before I get to Matt, I'll just I'll ask Roland um, if I sufficiently responded to to what you said or if there's if there's anything else you want to follow up with i i I would like to know or that there was a bit more to it than that and it it does make perfect sense and of course it's obvious why you didn't you know bring that up during the interview and I, i certainly wasn't implying that you you should have i was just kind of curious about the reconciliation but there really wasn't the need for one because it was just a um uh the right decision to make in a very narrow way but um hopefully one day we might live in the world where people won't have to make those kind of decisions yeah i i think that that's a that's a thing worth aspiring toward you know i mean i think it's unfortunate that you know you get you, you that there are these pressures on on people like them, you know, I, I think that because I think that it's sincerely it's not just that they're like cowards and avoiding stuff. OK, like when when somebody's when somebody's when somebody's existence depends on a circumstance being true, they're inclined to believe that to be the case. All right. And so, like, I'm not saying, you know, whether they you know literally believe everything they say or not is not really kind of what I'm getting at. But like, you know. It will, you know, your your circumstance actually influences your your belief system, right? And so, you know, they they are they're pressured into a certain you know framework in any case. Matt, you uh, you wanted to chime in about something? Sure. Yeah. Well, one of the things is about the bell curve, and I have to say that on one hand, the bell curve is. Uh, one of like a, a small handful of resources that, you know, got me on the path toward uh, race realism back in 2013, right after I was in the libertarian movement. Um, but I'm a bit critical of the bell curve because they just say IQ, 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 um, as if that's the only difference between the races. And I think that 
you know, um, I was learning about Japanese culture and, you know, I think a lot of people who might describe themselves as IQ nationalists might look at a German person with an IQ of 105 and a Japanese person with an IQ of 105. And they might just be like, well, those are the same people. But, you know, um, one thing I learned about Japanese culture is it seems that they have many, um, they have many different um, uh, instincts that, that result in conformity, whether it's high social anxiety or, you know, some people claim it's that they, they get enjoyment out of um, condemning those who fail to conform. And of course, we might see this in the Germans, but I think it's even higher in the Japanese. Um, but, you know, what, one of the other things is that we can look at um, white people with IQs of 100 and we can look at black people with IQs of 100 and the black people with IQs of 100 still tend to be more impulsive. So, um, like if you had impulse control and we say that the white norm is a hundred for that as well, you might have, you know, a black person who has an IQ of a hundred, but they might have an impulse control score of only, um, you know, 85. And, um, you know, I, I used to just be into IQ nationalism until I realized that you know, things that affect the brain. IQ is a very important one, but by no stretch of the imagination is it the only one. Yeah, I don't think that that's the case that Murray was making in the bell curve either. The only thing that, you know, the the, the primary thing that he was trying to illustrate in the bell curve is that the um, that socioeconomic status is highly correlated with IQ and that IQ is a genetically heritable trait, okay? Um, or that... There is a high degree of heritability to the trait of cognitive capacity, say. It wasn't that IQ is the measure of a man's value. That's never been the case that Charles Murray makes. And, and I don't think any, you know, there are what you what you mentioned, you know, IQ nationalists. I don't subscribe to that that theory myself. But there are, you know, there are people out there who, who look at things that way. And I think that, you know, you and I discussed this not so long ago, that like you actually require you know, a, a, a diverse, you, you require a range of, um, uh, uh, cognitive capacities to have a healthy functioning society. And so I, I certainly don't, I'm certainly not of the view and neither is Charles Murray, um, that that's the case. You know, one of the things that Murray made in another book coming apart was he made the case that, you know, sort of as a, as a consequence of economic policies and certain other features of life in America, you know, that, the cognitive elite were drifting away in culture from the rest of the society. Okay. And, and, you know, there are theories not posited by Murray as to why that occurs. I, I haven't read coming apart personally. I've just read summaries of it, but you know, he, he makes the case in coming apart that this is a very bad thing for America, essentially that like that, you know, these people have different cultures and now they're like foreign to one another. Okay. And that is, I think, that part of it, I, I would go so far as to say, is very obvious. And so um, I'm not I'm not sure if I've entirely responded to your point or if I've understood it correctly. Let me know. No, I think it was just that short point I wanted to make. One quick thing I'll say, is, though, is, you know, I mean, I've, I've met a lot of high IQ people, whether it's, 
you know, 110 or 125 or 150, 160. But, you know, I, I think that um, people have this idea that like all high IQ people are like this. And, you know, I've met so many high IQ people. And even if you're comparing, you know, same exact IQ plus or minus two and a half IQ points one way or the other, I, I still think there's so much variation because there are so many other personality traits that a person has. Yeah, I think that, um, I, well, I'm glad that you brought it up because I'm not sure if it's obvious to everybody, but I, I think that what you're saying is true. You know, I can even say like, how do I want to word this? Because I want to I want to word what I'm about to say carefully, but it's a point worth making that like, when I was when I was arrested in Virginia, um, and I was I was in the Elmore Charlottesville Regional Jail, you know, I was locked up with our guys, and there was a Jewish pedophile on the same cell block as us because they, ba- you know, we were all in a position that if they put us into the general population, it would create absolute chaos. Okay, so like, you know, we weren't, you know. We were in administrative segregation. It wasn't, you know, protective custody per se, but functionally that's what it was, okay? And so, like, you know, on on some level, um, that that Jewish pedophile was far from stupid, let's say, okay? There were things that I could talk to him about that I could not talk to, the, to, to our guys about, all right? And then there were things that I could talk to our guys about, but I obviously couldn't speak to the Jewish pedophile about, you know. And so, like, you know, being a high IQ guy, you know, you know, I can interact with people of a high IQ on a, on a certain level. And um, and but that does not mean that <laughs> that's a pretty, you know, the other features of this Jewish pedophile are very clearly like prohibitive of, of us being friends in a way that is not um prohibitive of me being friends with these other guys who are maybe not like um who who are not scoring off the charts on IQ tests say and not that the other guys were dumb okay it's just that you know i don't think i'm i don't think that i need to <laughs> i don't need to preface this with i'm not bragging because you know me but like yeah i have i have a high IQ okay <laughs> i you know my interactions with um in in most of my interactions with human beings, I I perceive correctly that I'm smarter than the people I'm talking to. Okay, and and so when I have the privilege of speaking to an intellectual peer, there's an enjoyment that comes along with that. That is not my normal experience in dealing with people. Um, but you know, as you say, you know, there are other traits about people besides their IQ which can be a very prohibitive of um, social interactions. Yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Okay. Anybody else? Uh, anybody else uh, chime in? Anything? I can. Uh, I will. I'll pull up a news story, and uh, I will hope that uh, some of you will chime in before uh, before we call it a night. Uh, but okay, go ahead. Who's that? Hi. Um, oh, hello, dear. So uh, I guess Connor. Let me turn my fan off. Kind of related to selling things, selling people things. My experience with people, I guess, selling, I, I never want to call it statism, but I, I don't have a better word yet. That's usually meant as a slur, but I, I don't have a better word. Um, That's fine. You can you can have, use you can use status. You can use statism. Now, let me just explain for the people who are not watching. So, 
Um, in, in case you don't know, dear, when I broadcast the video of this, nobody else sees you. And so it's relevant to yeah. what you're saying that your name in my chat is anarcho-Christian mom. And go ahead yes. with, with what you're saying. Yeah, so the defenses of the state that I've gotten from, I think probably everybody except you, are really poor, and not only poor, but really terrifying. Although, to be fair, the defenses I've got of anarchy from most people are also really poor, so there's that. And the thing that I get from people, whether they know what my position is or not, even if they don't know what my position is, people who I've talked to before I had this position, before I was an anarchist, their argument always is some variation of this thing is really evil and it does really dark things, but we still need it. And that might be true, but it's a really weird defense to make of a thing. I mean, at all. And that also then doesn't resolve the question of, is this thing evil? Because if it is, that's kind of, if you need an evil thing to survive, okay, fine. But it just seems like good to know and to interact with it as, as if you know that versus pretending it's harmless, which is kind of what they almost, they mo most people seem to want to pretend that. So I guess what, I don't know, I guess what's your response to that is, or is that something you've okay. had the same experience I, I, with? I will, uh, I will respond to your point, um, and I'll try to clarify it a little bit, because I see it's, uh, there's some confusion about what you're asking in the chat. So I think I can say, um, without divulging too much information about you, that we've had this conversation before. Yeah. inferring from that you say that you've heard this from me before, okay? And so I'm very glad that you bring this up because um, you and I have had very interesting discussions about this. I, I, I had, I find, uh, it's unfortunate, I think, that so few libertarians still call into the radical agenda because um, I, I would love to debate them on subject matter. Um, I would not describe my conversations with you as so much as debates as you know, you're you're probing me about my ideas and I'm trying to inform you of them and you ask me thoughtful questions. And so <clears throat> what Anarcho-Christian Mom is asking me is about what she's saying, what evil thing is the state itself, okay? And so if you've ever, you know, been involved in um, anarchist circles, you know, people basically assign negative moral characteristics to the state as an institution, most notably that its entire existence is based upon the theory that it it has the uh, the the proper authority to um, initiate force for its sustenance and for all of its activity. Okay, so like most notably taxation, all of the government's bills are are paid essentially through force. Okay, everything the government does, what separates the government essentially from you and I, is that the government can initiate force against people in order to accomplish its goals. All right. And so, um, uh, and so Matt says in the chat, he said, I thought he was talking about abortion. I'm glad we were able to clarify that. So um, I think that I, I think that it is misguided to describe the state as an evil institution, okay? Because it, if you have a, if like your requirements for survival 
um, include evil, you know, like I think that I think that there's a mistaken moral framework that makes that conclusion. It, you know, people say, well, we need the state. The state is a necessary evil is, is kind of this phrasing. OK. And I understand that, you know, necessary evil can be a useful um, rhetorical term. But it to think of things literally in that way becomes a problem, especially if you have religious views, because, you know, you're supposed to um, you're you're supposed to have very negative views about evil, clearly. Um, you know, you could say sort of like, you know, it's a, the lesser of two evils. It's a necessary evil in the course of conversation. And it conveys what you're saying. But if you view that literally like you actually have a very serious problem on your hands. And so I do not believe that the state is evil, actually, like I used to. And I, I no longer hold that view. Because, like, the, the very concept of the, the very idea that, like, libertarianism exists is sort of dis, disproved by this, that, like, libertarianism is able to have its sort of, like, what—I don't mean to speak too derisively of it, because I think there's a lot of intellectual value in it, but it, it's what are essentially idle intellectual pursuits precisely because libertarians live under the protection of the state— and so, like, you know, the idea that we would all be, you know, individual property owners in sort of like little covenant communities will not withstand the military force of communist China, say. OK. And so well, like, but that's another state, though. So it's like saying kind of the, the defense that some even parents will say, like, oh, well, I'm protecting you from CPS. So if I beat you half to death every day, then I'm protecting you from CPS who would rape you. It's like, okay, but you're, you're protecting them from a different abusive entity, like, because China is also a state. Well, yes, okay. So, like, but the thing is that, yes, so China is a state with 1.4 billion citizens, all right? and And since the communist Chinese Communist Party is terribly unlikely to become an anarcho-communist, you know, series of, you know, millions of different covenant communities and cease to have a military, you know, that is a fact of life. And so, like, the idea that, you know, we, we only have to have a state because other states exist, and therefore we should endeavor to abolish all states is kind of like, you know, we we very quickly venture beyond the boundaries of practicality. Okay, and so like one of the things that was actually most influential to me was a piece by Murray Rothbard titled um, it "Was wasn't titled it, Egalitarianism as a Revolt Against Nature." Okay, and he and he gives this example. What he's actually talking about is left wing ideas about egalitarianism, and he says like, okay. The, the right tends to grant the left and their egalitarian fantasies the moral high ground when it comes to their, their ridiculous ideas about equality. But since those ideas are impractical, our ideas should prevail in politics. And he makes a very compelling case that, like, well, as a matter of fact, like, you, you're going to lose the argument that way because people are not inclined to decline—people are not inclined to— shun morality, all right? If, if they have the moral high ground, then they win the election, all right? And, and also, it's, it's not the moral high ground. You're fictionally giving it to them, because if the, moral, if, if the idea that you're saying is moral is also impossible and hostile and impossible to the nature of man and the universe, 
then actually it is not a moral goal and you should not work to achieve it. And he gives this example that, okay, let us let us presume that it has been accepted in society that it is a moral aspiration for men to be able to fly by flapping their arms. And we all understand that that's impossible, but we're going to aspire towards that anyway. And anybody who is deemed immoral enough not to pursue the goal of arm flying, uh, we will condemn them as a sinner and we will cause unceasing misery for them and get them fired from their jobs and this sort of thing. Well, like that is going to result in chaos and danger and disorder for the society. And that is going to result in a in in nothing positive whatsoever and so to pursue that goal is not a moral aim and therefore the entire moral premise ought to be rejected and i think is a fair summary of the piece and so and this was something that was very influential in my while i was still a libertarianism in, in in libertarianism and well i just simply applied that to like the government when people are like coming to terms with like okay yeah there's a government over there and because there's a government over there, we need a government, and therefore all governments are evil and we should work to abolish communist China. Like, this is just impractical. It's not actually something that's ever—you're never going to do that. And if you were going to try to do that, your limited resources, your limited time on this earth, your limited mind power, all of your energies, all the things that are important— would be spent on doing something that is impossible and therefore stupid, unproductive, and and not at all conducive to the happiness of mankind. And so, why are we holding up a moral framework that is impossible and and claiming ourselves to be the logical, practical people? Well, as a matter of fact, we're not. That's just not what we're doing. So, what is the state? And so, I have I tried I I would say unsuccessfully to produce an episode of Surreal Politics titled Defense of the State, and I don't think I did a very good job of it, and I intend to return to that subject. One of the things that I thought was—one of the things that was very influential in sort of talking me out of this was actually reading Mein Kampf, okay? Like, Adolf Hitler goes into uh, whatever you think of Adolf Hitler. Like, he actually, for the first time that I ever read, made, made an articulated, like, what the state is— what its purpose is, what what is the difference between a citizen and a subject, and, and all these different things, the relationship between the state and the citizen and what the purposes of these institutions are. And the case that Adolf Hitler basically makes, and you can take issue with it, but you know he's basically making the case that it's a eugenics program. I don't think he uses that word, but it's the maintenance of the organism that is the, the, the people under that society. And well, that makes a great deal of sense. Like, that's why you have immigration laws. That's why you have marriage licenses. That's why you have all the, the things that are basically the functions of the state. And he specifically says it's not, it is not a, you know, a way for making economic contracts with other countries. Like, that's that's a silly concept because, you know, if that's all it was, then 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 why is it there in the first place to be able to do that? Okay. I, that maybe that's not the best articulation of his position, but you know you kind of get the idea that like the state exists because there's an organism called the society, and just like you have you have cells within your body, like they are not they don't own themselves, like they're not independent entities, like you know you have you have those cells have molecules and those molecules have atoms and like none of them are individuals. Okay. Like they make up your organs and, and none of your organs are individuals. Like they all, they all rely upon one another. And if you don't have all of your atoms and all of your molecules and all of your cells and all of your organs are not all working together, then the body dies. 
and this is really not so different than a than a country that like if if the if the people are atomized and cease to coordinate with one another well then then the then the organism called the society is going to die and the the government serves an important function that can be likened in some sense to like you know part central nervous system and part you know immune system that like it attacks threats you know it it coordinates activity and you know it's sort of it's a it's it's a means of social organization fundamentally that has a coercive element to it and i think that the fact that there's a coercive element is something that's focused on by libertarians to such an extent that they sort of like lose the idea that you know like they they start from here's what libertarians do that's probably that i think is wrong they start with the premise that you know the coercive element has to be wrong and then from there they extrapolate all else well like that's actually not that's not a that's actually not a good way to figure out the nature of a thing in any case so you can make a if you want to make a, a philosophy around it i mean it's not you know you can make compelling arguments from this but i don't think that you can analyze the nature of something in this way because you know the, libertarians have always struggled talking about for example the relationship between parents and children and and so like the relationship between parents and children has a coercive element to it and we tend to like overlook this today but historically you know the relationship between husband and wife has had a you know a coercive element to it as well and all of that in my view is entirely appropriate because there's actually a requirement for it you know a, a husband and father needs to be able to protect and provide for his family and if they're not doing what he says then like he then like he cannot perform his functions okay and then that puts them in danger you know they 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 will if he can't do what he needs to do then they will not be provided for they will not be protected and that's not conducive to the organism of the family and so he has to be able to you know enforce his will in some way and of course the you know the mother has uh, uh, that relationship with her children that like okay if the if the children are not doing um, what they are told to do then she has to you know if nothing else forcibly restrain them and if we were to run around forcibly restraining people as adults in the street, we would call this either kidnapping or arrest. But we don't say that mothers are evil for restraining their children. And so, like, there's, you know, we accept appropriately that there's there's a coercive element to positive relationships in, in this organism called the family. Well, you know, just extrapolate that out to the nation, and then, and then, and then the government makes a lot more sense. Now— if the government's doing bad things, which I would agree that it is, you know, I've been I've just been, you know, you don't need me to tell you why I think that that's possible, obviously. But, you know, the fact that we have the capacity to participate, you know, is, you know, there's it's it's obviously possible for the government to do bad things. And so there's no substitute for good government. And what we've had, I think, very tragically is a situation where people are very concerned about morals, and because they're very concerned about morals, they've sworn off of politics. They're like, oh, the government's immoral. I will not participate in something that's immoral. I'm going to step away from it. And then what you end up with is a bunch of people who don't care about morals, who are running the government, and then bad things happen. And so that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly complex you know, chain of events. And so I think that the answer to that, obviously, is to have better people in government, beginning with 
people who are very concerned about morals, you know, getting in, getting involved in, in the government. And so that would be, um, I think, I don't know that I've so much responded exactly to your point so much as I have tried to rehash other things that we've discussed. And I'll let you respond to what I've said. Yeah. And so kind of like the, with the difference between parents and the state, and I know that this is not this, this positive, it's almost a fallacy, fallacy, if anything, but almost no one denies like the rightful authority of parents over at least little kids. We can argue about at what point you become an adult, but nobody says, oh, well, I had to grab my kid to run into traffic and that's a necessary evil. And I was really wrong for doing that, but I didn't have any other, like nobody says that, but people do say, and I mean like defenders of the state that, well, you know, it was wrong to bomb this country or it was wrong to arrest that person. And, but this, what we need all these wrong things because we need, and that's, I guess, suspect to me. And I know that, I mean, it is possible that everybody's just wrong. I'm not <laughs> obviously going to discount that, but it's, and then with parents kind of, I think the defense there or the, the logic there is, well, you're, exercising control over these people but you're doing it for their benefit like you can't just lock your kids in the closet because you want to go party and they're in the way you can lock your kids in the house because they run into traffic or because they need to sleep because it's healthy or something like that the idea is that it's for them you're acting more in a trustee situation where that doesn't really seem to be the case with the state. They're doing things. I mean, in reality, they're doing things because they want to. And if you want to say that this state is bad, technically, and this this is something I kind of went through when I was a minarchist, just because every state I have happened to come across is evil does not mean that the state per se is evil. And I accept that. But it does seem to be that there is not even an idea of, well, the state is making this thing illegal because it's going to protect you from yourself, which is the case with parents, because they don't come and, like, stop you and take care of you. They come and throw a grenade through your window or well, the, the, the state is not there to protect you from yourself. The, the state is there to protect other people from you. And if you're self-destructive, then the state intervenes because it's predictable that you will eventually harm other people. Right. So, like, that's fundamentally what the state is doing, in my view, anyway. Um, I, I think that what you're describing it about, OK, people say, OK, the you know, the government bombed this place and that was evil, but uh, we need it. And so I pardon the state this sin. Well, like. I think that actually, you know, you have to understand that most people never have to make a defense of the state as such. OK, they're very rarely asked to do this. Even people who engage in other political arguments on a routine basis are, are rarely met with like are, are rarely met with arguments from anarchists. And even when they are, they don't consider them to be very pertinent. OK, so they don't they don't they and and they are not compelled to do a great deal of thinking about the nature of the state itself, generally speaking. They have like arguments like you see like arguments between conservatives and liberals about what is the purpose of government? What is the role of the state? They they actually never pause for a second to consider the nature of the institution. Right. You never hear this discussed 
sort of you know on in mainstream um, in mainstream politics because the state is considered you know sort of the ultimate given. I think that you know being compelled to do this in you know speaking to anarcho-capitalists is sort of a uh, is sort of a, a worthwhile exercise because I, I think that what underlines uh, what what is what is the sort of like I think the intellectual force between a lot of what the left does is, you know, like everything they do is deceptive, obviously, but like they're actually, their their ideas come from the premise that, you know, that they're actually trying to destroy the government, okay? And so like that's, that's lost on a lot of people because the left is always trying to increase the size and scope of government, and so they're seen as these people who, who, who want a lot of government or something, but my my conception of it is actually that they're they're intentionally discrediting the institution and the purpose of ex- its expansion is actually to make it intolerable okay now you know that um that doesn't respond directly to your point but the the idea that the the idea that i'm getting at is fundamentally that most people don't understand that there's an argument about the nature of the state they they think that their conception of it is the same as everybody else and because they don't they don't know that that's one of the disputes in our politics they're never compelled to make it and therefore they're not they're not in a position to do so it's like if you go and you approach somebody and you say you know take somebody who's never thought about abortion say they don't know anything about you know the gestation of an infant they never had a child they're 16 years old they've just never had a conversation about it you know whatever conclusions they come to are just plain uninformed. They, they're not in a position to have the argument. I would say that m- most people in the world, and it's not, it's not an, it's not a, 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 there's no specific category of person that I would apply this to. I would say almost nobody has been in a position to actually consider what is the nature of the state. And, and therefore, like, they're they're persuaded. I think that's why a lot of people are persuaded to anarchism. They're like the nature of the state is violence and it's evil. And and somebody's like, well, nobody's ever tried to explain the nature of the state to me except for you. And so the first time I'm exposed to what is the nature of the state, I'm informed that it's evil violence. Well, that makes perfect sense because the government really ticks me off sometimes. And so like you know, a certain number of people are persuaded by that and they become libertarians, and other people just reject it and don't really think about it. Other people, you know, sort of adopt a more, shall we say, like realpolitik, you know, disposition towards it and say like, okay, yeah, you know, it's like I'm going to force you to do things because that's what I want to do. And some of them, you know, might adopt that and and have wicked intentions. And other people are like, well, because I don't want to coerce people, because I don't think that that's the right thing to do, then I'll stay out of politics. And then it's predictable who ends up in control of the institution. Um, I'll let you go again because I doubt I've fully responded to what you're saying. Yeah, and and that's fair. And to be fair, I have in the past sarcastically thanked the sheriff's office. I mean, after I moved thousands of miles away and was safe for their hand in my conversion, because I just would have never thought about it if if I was in a better place, if I was in somewhere where it wasn't just like a daily occurrence to get pulled over coming home from my completely legal licit job or to just have them just robbing and attacking people for absolutely no clear reason or and and there is that it's like well i probably never would have thought about it if i was living in a better one which is 
it just seems really unfair kind of to the state that I am living in. It's like, well, they didn't do that, but here I am an anarchist. Well, Although, I mean, the, go ahead. The truth is still whatever it is, whether I'm wrong or not. And I'm, I'm not going to come to a conclusion for like their sake, I guess, but it just, it does, it does still seem slightly unfair. But. Well, I think that you're, you're, what you're illustrating is, um, is a worthwhile point that basically, you know, if you live in a place where the government is, you know, behaving badly, um, it's easy to have negative feelings towards this. And uh, when you come to a place where the um, where the institutions are not nearly so repressive, it can it can certainly change your change your view of them. But, you know, then you run into this idea, because if 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 your negative experiences combined with a certain amount of propagandizing or education, depending on how you want to word it, you know, have led you to like these these anarcho-capitalist ideas that the state is an evil institution because of its initiatory violence. Well, then, like, you know, the fact that the the government of a less oppressive place is not interfering in your life nearly as much actually doesn't solve the problem because fundamentally it's still, you know, it's still acquiring its sustenance through coercive means and therefore it's evil. And it's only a matter of time before these power-hungry monsters come and take your guns and, and tax you at 100% is kind of like the is the ideology that that comes along with a lot of this. And so, like, you know, I certainly subscribed to that for a long time after I came to New Hampshire, that basically all of my attitudes towards the government, when you saw, like, I used to do these things, I would go testify before committees, committee hearings in the New Hampshire Assembly, right, or the New Hampshire House of Representatives, I forget what we call it here, but the lower house of the legislature in any case. And so, like, I was I was kind of impressed that like these the institution was like so accessible. Like I would go in with a handgun on my hip, visible. I would go open carry into a room full of lawmakers and I would just go, you know, sign my name in a book. And then I'd sit down and I'd give them a piece of my mind. They'd thank me for my time, maybe ask me a couple of questions and then I'd go off on my day. And like it was kind of hard to be mad at those people. Right. (laughs) Like. Oh yeah, they disappeared. People were for for less than that. I've so well, right? Not not New Hampshire, but places I have been. They have disappeared. People they've disappeared. Journalists for less than that. Right, and so like it's kind of hard to be mad at these people when they're like, oh, let me ask thoughtful questions about your concerns and see about putting them into law. Right? I'm like, oh well, Which, you, you know, well you're still you're still paid by taxation, so you're a monster. Like you know, it, it the that experience. You know, if you if you think about it, and you. And this is the thing, right? Like, you know, a lot of people make fun of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she had this interview with Anderson Cooper where she's like, oh, you know, well, like, it's more important to be morally right than factually correct, okay? And every, you know, conservatives looked at this like, oh, well, you know, what a dummy. You know, how could you, you know, put a separation between those two things? But, like, there's a lot of that. Like, that goes on all of the time. Like, what? I'm not trying to talk about the facts. I'm trying to be morally correct. And, like, well, you know, if you if you accept that that's possible, then, like, you know, then you can make a lot of errors. And as a matter of fact, you could do a lot of damage that way. So, like, no, like, if you're if you're if your moral premise is factually wrong, then the only thing that you can do is force people into an immoral framework 
and create unceasing misery for 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 decent people, right? And and the and only and only decent people will be harmed by that, right? More importantly, the people who don't care about you know your moral frame, they don't care about these things. They're not affected by it at all, you know. And so, like the only people that you can harm with this are good people, and that's not worth doing, in my view. Well, and so I, I think the difference between the state and the bird thing is that you can't get closer to being able to flap your wings and fly as a human, whereas you can get rid of a regulation or lower a tax, even if you can never dissolve the state, you can get closer to that. I guess the question, the open question is, is that good or not? And I think I basically like ran myself into a circle and I'm still not convinced that the state is moral, but a lot more of it seems to be self-defense, which started off as just like the immigration thing. It's like, okay, well, there's a million communists who have zero job skills who want to walk across the southern border and impose communism and steal things. Well, if the, I don't know what they're called, the the border patrol people want to sit there and shoot everything that moves that seems more like self-defense but if the average person is more what i now think they are then a lot more things kind of are defended by that argument where it's like okay well heroin is illegal because if the average person tries it they're going to just completely be a burden And at some point, this just seems like a really tortured argument, but I I can't really, at this point, fully justify either either side, I guess, is is my issue. Well, you know, I I um, uh, had—I'll share with you something that's not exactly the point that you're making, but it it bears some light on it, okay? So, like, I was talking about the conflict in Ukraine earlier on Telegram, and somebody said— it's difficult to be of a single mind on this, all right? And I responded to him. I said, well, it's difficult to be on a single of a single mind about anything because the world is complex, okay? Like, there's a lot of nuance involved in actually everything we do, perhaps war most of all. And so if we're talking about the state itself and all that encompasses the state, like, you know, you're going to end up with things that you like and things that you dislike, and therefore that is going to involve coercion being applied to in, in ways that you think are inappropriate. And as a matter of fact, like, that's not so much different from everything else that is your life, okay? So, like, your your life is full of things that have ups and downs, and and it is totally unsurprising to you that you are you are satisfied to varying degrees with elements of your life and you and you actually never expect to be completely satisfied if you're if you're sane right if if you actually if you understand things deeply enough that then you come to understand that you're not capable of total satisfaction because if your every desire were fulfilled now you, you would develop new desires right so like right. You're, you're you're not psychologically capable of satisfaction so like <clears throat> if you understand that then you know then then the idea that you're not particularly happy with everything the government does does not seem actually it actually doesn't seem like that controversial of an idea of course like yeah okay so that's just how life works that's the same thing as all of my other relationships 
And so how can I try to improve it and be more satisfied? And some portion of that might be to alter your own behavior and your own expectations. And other components might be to intervene in politics and try to change the behavior of the government. But, you know, through those two combinations of things, your your satisfaction over time will go up and down. But it, it is not it's not an entirely external factor, your satisfaction with the situation. Like it has a lot to do with yourself and your own disposition. And so, you know, all of everything in your life involves, you know, varying degrees of, you know, satisfaction. And it's not and it shouldn't be surprising that the state is one of those things. Or and I, I was never and I have seen I have seen some of us do this. I was never in favor of like protesting the fire department or harassing the mailman or even lower level. Even the cops here aren't horrible. Not that I'm going to be a fan of everything they do, but there's some point where it's like, okay, even, even if this is philosophically wrong, it's just not worth bothering with. Yeah. You know, let me give you a great example that you've tried to spare me from chasing the meter maids around. Okay. So like, you know, if you start to think about, you know, I, I know that you're familiar with the Hoppy and Covenant community idea, okay? So, like, yes. once you, you know, that's like the final stage of libertarianism, okay? This is this is like the, this is like, uh, what's the, you know, the stages of grief, you know, one of them is Hoppa, all right? And so, like, <laughs> you go through the Hoppa stage of grieving for your libertarianism, and then, and then, it, and then you move on, all right? So, you know, for anybody who doesn't, isn't familiar with this already, the Hoppian idea is that, you know, you don't have... You know, it's not it's not everybody is, you know, their own king on their own, you know, you know, one acre plot of land. It's that fundamentally what you end up with is some people are better at acquiring property than others and they be end up being giant landlords, which are functionally monarchs. OK. And so in that environment, you have all the functions of the state. Right. You, like it's just the ownership assignment rules are different. And there's a there's a, somebody who's managing the affairs of the society as as would a government. And so one of those things would be that you have roads and off of the roads, there are parking spaces and somebody needs to make sure that the parking spaces are not being there since they're a shared resource amongst the people of the community. They need to be managed intelligently by somebody who says, hey, you know, you can't park there and there has to be, you know, a penalty associated with this. And so, you know, a covenant community in the Hoppian sense would have parking enforcement. And so, like, we made fools of ourselves running around screaming at these people. And, you know, uh, fine. It's a learning experience. So, like, you know, those that, that's not the worst thing. I, I wasn't even thinking about that. I had a roommate at one point who got up and decided to firefighter block the, the fire truck. And it was just bizarre. You really, I never saw that. You know, if firefighters are sympathetic figures, that's interesting. You know, we, yeah, and it's it, like, okay, is taxation theft? Sure, but just th this is not. We can we can fight about that when we get down to extreme anarchy. Like this is not really. Well, you know, there's the thing. So, like, you know, one of the reasons that we did go after the meter maids is because nobody's particularly happy with what they're doing, right? So, like. You know, nobody likes to get a parking ticket. And so, like, people would cheer us on when we did this. They're like, yeah, screw those people. I don't like parking tickets, you know. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that where we did it in Keene, they had a lot less hostility towards these people than in other places because it's $5. You know, it's literally like, you know, the, 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 the thing is put a quarter in the meter or pay five bucks. Those are your choices. 
And so, like, people were not nearly so hostile towards the meter maid as they are in, say, New York City, you know. But, of course, in New York City, people appreciate all the more <laughs> the need for parking enforcement because, you know, parking is a very complex thing there, and you could pay a lot of money to park a car there. Um, but in any case, like, you know, I, I think— uh, uh, all right, so you've illustrated the point that you could do something dumber than chasing the meter maid, very certainly, by going and protesting a fire truck. They're a sympathetic figure, and um, every nobody doubts that we'd want fires extinguished in uh, in whatever you imagine your 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 better society to be. Certainly, right, and it, but it does still seem relevant. Well, not relevant to day to day life, but relevant because if you're interacting with this thing whether or not it is inherently evil seems relevant to me even if you can't dissolve it because i mean we're never going to completely eradicate murder or theft or any other crime loosely speaking crime that doesn't mean i get to now go condone it so whether or not it is crime or aggression or whatever you want to call it seems it still seems relevant to me well, it's certainly like what you think is moral and immoral is relevant by definition, right? There's no such thing as irrelevant moral questions, I'd say. Okay. So, whether or not you, you know, whatever you think morality is, at least so far as you are concerned, it's definitely relevant. But, you know, that's, I think that that is part of a, uh, something of an ideological journey that you have, happen to be on. And I'm going to inform you now that it does not have a terminus, okay? So, like, you know, w- when you are trying to um, contemplate the, the, the nature of morals, as a matter of fact, you're, you're not going to find a firm answer to that, I don't think. So, like, you, you will—your your ideas over that will—of that—and that's part of the problem with libertarianism, I think, that, like, they've sort of, like, made this axiomatic solution to— to problems that don't have axiomatic solutions. And that leads them into bad places. You've seen it happen, right? That, like, people think, like, oh, well, you know, as long as I'm not initiating force against people, then I've committed no sin. And then they sin, and they have all of the consequences of sin, whether the government gets involved or not, right? And so, like, you know, that's that's a serious that's a serious yeah, thing. Yeah, I've never considered anarchy to be like a complete life philosophy. You can screw up really bad without committing aggression and and you will have the consequences thereof. Well, right. So like here's the thing though. So think about it this way then. You're you you are able to understand that, you know, what you know, evil is something that uh you're able to understand that Evil exists outside of initiatory violence, okay? And so, like, knowing that, you know, then why would we accept the premise that the only correct use of force is in defense of person and property, right? So, like, why would we not use force against evil? And I guess what would have said before is that because using the force leads to much worse results. Like if you see the drug war in the U S then it just appears to be a lot worse than people doing cocaine or something like that. Although that doesn't mean that it has to be because it kind of recently occurred to me that 
they're not actually trying to do that. And if they were, maybe they'd have better results and maybe they wouldn't. I, I think that you've been able to observe the consequences of loose drug enforcement. Would that be fair to say? Yes. Do, do you believe that the consequences of that have been positive? No. Okay. So, you know, what what you've witnessed is actually that, you know, people try to institute, you know, sort of a misguided idea politically, and the consequences have been very bad, and, and it's led a lot of people to destruction. And so, like, you know, I don't, like, and that's a consequence of people, like, acting on a misguided moral premise, okay? So, like, they're like, I don't want to harm these people, so I'm just going to let them be heroin addicts. Well, as a matter of fact, those people are being harmed very, very severely, as a matter of fact. And so, like, you could have helped those people a great deal by being like, hey, I'm taking your drugs away. You know, like, and by the way, you who sold them the drugs, we're going to treat you really bad. Like, we're going to real, we're going to we're going to destroy you, you know, and you do that. You, you know, if you do that uniformly enough, you know, you can actually keep the drugs out of a society. There are societies that do that. You know, the fact that we can't keep them out of our prisons is is a consequence of. We're dealing with very bad people being in charge, right? You know, one of the things that you come to know if you spend some time in prison is that it's the it's the cops who are bringing in a lot of the contraband, okay? Like, you know, in the federal prison, and this was not the case where I was because we were in a very tight unit, but, like, you know, there are cell phones pervading throughout the federal prison system. Like, people have cell phones all over the federal prison system. Well, like, there's no way that, like, people are just shoving iPhones up their butt, okay? Like, that's not happening. They're being brought in by the cops. So there's no substitute for good government when the government is run by people who are wicked or incompetent or greedy and don't care about the doing right or wrong. If they don't care about the obligations of their jobs, then you run into bad situations. And it's and there's no there's no alternative to fixing that. OK, like if the people in the government are are not they don't care about what they're if they don't treat their positions as like having moral obligations and they don't view themselves as answering to any authority but their own satisfaction then like you run into all of the consequences that are predictable from that situation and so like the only answer to that thing is for the people who are refraining from being involved in the government to be involved in the government that's actually the only solution because the government exists. It's it's the ultimate given. It's actually part of you. You are part of the government, and it is and it is integrally part of your life, and you are integrally part of it, whether you like it or not. There's no there's no escaping it. And so you trying to do that is you acting contrary to the reality of your life, and then you're meeting undesirable consequences as a result. Yeah, and I guess part of my quote problem is. Okay, so the state exists. Okay, then what? I just view as an entirely different question to should the state exist? Because it does. It, it very clearly does. And I don't, I don't think it's possible for that to change, actually. And I never did. Well, you, you know what you, you mentioned earlier, like, okay, you can't, it, you can't abolish the state, but you can reduce a tax you gave the example of. Okay. Well, like, actually, like, reducing a tax is, is not like a step on the road to abolishing this. You're, you're actually not coming closer to the goal of getting rid of it, okay? As a matter of fact, the quickest way that you can collapse a government is for it to tax it 100% and abuse everybody under its protection, right? The, the, the quickest way for a government to cease to exist is to 
wage war in perpetuity and expend all of its resources, right? So like you're you're actually not moving in the in the in the direction of the abolition of the state by making it behave more reasonably. You're 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 preserving its its longevity as a matter of fact. And so like, you know, I think that that's part of the misconception is that okay, like you want you want the you want a society where like, you know, I guess what 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 I think was sort of important on my dr- drifting away from these ideas was that you know what is it that you want okay like what you actually you like you say you want the abolition of the government but that's not actually what you want what, what you want is uh, uh, you <clears throat> you want to like not be you, you you want to be treated better and you don't want the government to like make your life impossible okay you want to be able to live a decent life and do decent things with decent people and so like that's actually like a much more reasonable goal and that's actually like an, a goal that you can accomplish and that's that's a thing that you can pursue politically and so like people have this people they believe that they're pursuing one goal but they're that's actually not what they want and so you know that and because they're because they have a misconception of what it is that they want and they're pursuing it they're like perpetually unhappy and they you know they end up in all sorts of like pathological behavior i think that you know they and and it's because they've been sort of like misinformed about what the thing is and i think that if you think about the government as you know it's just it's an integral part of the social i i don't i know libertarians make fun of the idea of a social contract but like you know it is uh, it, it is a social institution like it is an inherent part of the the social organization all you know all social creatures have you know a dominance hierarchy okay like you know chimps do this they they patrol a perimeter and they and they have a they have an alpha male and if the alpha male sort of you know mistreats everybody then the other chimps will gang up and beat the alpha male to death and then there'll be another alpha male right and it just sort of like emerges like that meerkats are a, a fascinating subject like they have, you know, they basically have an alpha female who who chooses her male mate and then they prevent all the other meerkats from breeding, you know. And if the other meerkats like, you know, are caught breeding, like they'll like the they'll they might kill the offspring and stuff. So like, you know, the other animals do this. And I'm not saying that we necessarily want to emulate the behavior of other animals, but it's like it's a normal social institution for there to be a coercive organizational element to a social you know, to to the to the organization of a social animal, and so, you know, trying to conceive of it, you know, I think that the what you're doing is, and I understand why you are, and I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to demean what your what your position is by saying this. You're beginning with you're beginning with a premise, right? And you're and you're defending the premise. I I think that you begin from a false premise and and all your extrapolations are therefore flawed and i and i think that the, w- what you're observing is that since those outward extrapolations are 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 flawed you're you're trying to conceive of where the where the problem ensues and i think that the i suspect i don't know for certain but i think that the conclusion you're going to reach is because you're starting from a flawed premise you're you're beginning from this idea that you know that initiatory violence is wrong and therefore the state is evil and if you and if you begin with that like axiomatic viewpoint then then it's it's clear that your outward extrapolations are going to be incorrect yeah and that that's how i got there and it it, it just seemed really obvious at the time it would have seemed less obvious 
had I grown up in New Hampshire, I think, and lived there, which is... The irony of that is not lost on me, but yeah, that, that that's how I got there. Well, yeah, and so like when you're when you're given this axiomatic, you know, ideological program statement, and it meshes with your experience, you're like, oh well, if I didn't have this happening to me, then I'd be so much happier. I accept your premise, and then the 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 problem that you run into is that you know you have a three digit IQ, and then you start thinking about the outward extrapolations of that over time. And you're realizing that it's not corresponding to reality. And then and then you move and you find yourself in a place where you don't have nearly so much trouble with the government. And and you realize, like, OK, you know, you know, I mean, even in New Hampshire, you know, there's plenty of anarchists in New Hampshire, obviously. So it's not it's not impossible to believe these things in New Hampshire. It's not just that it's it's not just that the government here is less oppressive. And as a matter of fact, you know, your experience speaks to this, that as a matter of fact, like what what happens, what has happened here is that the government's like stopped enforcing its drug laws and then we saw the consequences of it right so like the government actually became less oppressive in in the mind of so many libertarians and now we're looking at like junkies on the streets and needles and crime and and like that's the outcome of the government being more libertarian and they'll say well you know that's because they haven't gone and done everything else that's because they don't sell heroin at walmart yet you know like like this is the stupid ideas that people will come up with you know imagine for a second that they actually legalize the drugs which is what a lot of these people say now just imagine that in your mind that there's like fentanyl commercials on television every five minutes you know imagine it's like in the candy aisle you know and like the only thing that's going to prevent them from doing that is like market forces or something like that. Like this is preposterous. It would be an absolute catastrophe and it wouldn't take long for it to completely destroy us. Like somebody has to go out and say no damn drugs. Somebody has to do that. And like and if they and if they don't, then then it's going to be a lot worse than the stuff that you walk by in the parks in your neighborhood. Yeah. And, and part of my problem was I had a misconception of what an average person is like. And I was like, okay, well, most people aren't going to go out and buy heroin and just do heroin all day because they're smarter than that. And as it turns out, maybe they aren't. Well, but, and you know, here's the thing. I'll tell you, too, like, you know, there's plenty of smart people who get m screwed up on drugs, okay? I've been one of them, by the way. So, like, you know, and, and alcohol all the more, right? So, like, you legalize the drugs, you make the drugs readily available, and, like, you know, intelligent people are actually less averse to doing them. Okay, so like, you know, an intelligent person says like, "Hey, uh, you know, I don't want to go to prison for for twenty years, so I'm not going to buy heroin." Okay, you know, they go to the they go to the they go to the store, and they buy alcohol, and like they destroy themselves with alcohol, or they get drunk, and then they think doing drugs is a good idea, and you know, these things ensue, right? So like, you know, intelligence is not what separates people from bad behavior necessarily. Well, and. It's it's not, but it's also the people who I've been around who are doing things like that manage to completely function. I mean, including including myself with alcohol, uh, it managed to completely function with the drugs. And so I was like, okay, well, drugs aren't the problem. Just like you're lazy, get up. Go, you, like you still have to go to work. It doesn't matter that you're high. And that just seems not to be a level on which most people can operate. And if that's the case, then my position on that just really needs to be entirely revamped and reevaluated because then people are not what I thought they were. And we're making rules about people. 
Let me uh, let me ask if anybody else wants to chime in. We've been talking for a little while. Does anybody else uh, have anything they want to uh, input to our conversation? Well, you know, one one thing I'd say is that I think that anarchy can be more um, more successful in some populations and less successful in others. Like, for example, we we oftentimes talk about you know, an anarchy of white people or an anarchy of black people, like it's the exact same thing. I don't think that's true. Now, that's not to necessarily say that a, a white anarchy would be successful, but it, I'm pretty sure it would be more successful than black anarchy. And I think that we can see the history of America. And, you know, as, as people were moving from east to west, as white people were moving from east to west, there was at least some form of anarchy, or at least if there was a government, it was not the exact same type of government that we think of today. It, it might not have had voting, it might not have had a president, but if not a state, they still had some social norms, whether those social norms were just or unjust is sort of aside from the point, they still had societal rules. And I think the issue is even under um, anarcho-capitalism, you're still going to have societal rules, and those might not always be according to the non-aggression principle. Well, I think um, that—I'll I, I, let you continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I think that, you know, what you're describing in, say, you know, frontier times, uh, say, what you're dealing with is a situation where those social norms are enforced by people whose authority is not— endowed with what we would perceive to be called officialdom say okay like if you if you're out in the wilderness and you know you you run afoul of what somebody thinks things ought to be you know you could get shot or beaten you know but the coercive element remains in social organization i'll, I'll let you continue yeah well i mean i think that um you know the the issue is that the question of government or no government i think has to be seen as a debate of biology you know we could call it a political debate but really it's a biological debate and you know you're gonna have a lot of people who are gonna want to live off of welfare because that's what um that's what biology uh, has programmed them to do, which is not to say that environment means nothing in that. But, you know, I mean, I think that if you are working toward anarchy, um, rather than trying to abolish the state directly, maybe trying to change the composition of your country or even trying to change the, the composition of the world may actually be a step in the direction of anarcho-capitalism and whether you whether you um, ever completely get to anar anarchy or whether you just get to smaller government, I think is irrelevant. It's It would be a step in the right direction. Well, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you think that moving towards self-government is axiomatic, I'm sorry, moving towards reducing the size and scope in government is axiomatically good. Is that the position that you're articulating? Um, I guess it would be good if it were practical, but, you know, you just have um, so many cases where there will be people who, you know, want to uh, use the state. And, you know, to me, I, I don't like to get into the debates of, you know, small government, big government, no government, 
because I just believe that the people who make up a community or make up a country or make up the world, I think that's so much more of a relevant thing. And, you know, some people will say, well, but, you know, what if we let people from third world countries or, or um, no, they make the opposite argument. Like they're worried that if we have border restrictions, you know, even if it's just to keep communists out, that the danger is the state will just grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I, I think the, the thing is the first thing you need to look at is who's in your country and what are their birth rates and, you know, work that out first. Everything else, you know, if, if you have a, a, a third world, very brown, you know, genetically defective population, there's no way you're going to have a successful, you know, anarchist state, well, not anarchist state, but anarchist place anyway. I, I, um, okay, I will, we're nearing the end, and so I'm not going to get into a big discussion of that, but let's maybe put a pin in it and come back to it. I know Hatting um, was in the, uh, well, Hatting tells me that he unmuted his mic a long time ago. Maybe when you weren't in the video chat, you might have unmuted your mic, but your mic is presently muted in this chat. And so maybe I can, can I, can I make your mic unmute? No, I cannot. I cannot unmute your mic, Hatting. Um, the, the, I actually don't know how this works for you. And so, the video chat is not even coming on. Well, Hatting, you're in the video chat currently. And so there's a there's a way for you to unmute your mic within this application. And if you see a picture of a microphone that does not have a line through it, then hit that microphone and then the line will be through it, which will tell you like so like um, the fact that the line is not through the microphone means that when you hit the button, it will unmute your mic. And then when your mic is unmuted, it will have the line through it, which means that you hit the button and that will mute your mic. You see what I'm uh, what I'm saying? And so this would have uh, um, been something that uh, I would have hoped you would uh, have worked out. OK, you have just attempted to turn on your camera, but not your microphone. So I see that uh, your camera is set to OBS and you have attempted to. <clears throat> Un, uh, turn your camera on. Now you just have to find the microphone button instead of the uh, instead of the camera, and then that would allow you to speak. Um, and so, I will vamp a little bit more. Let's, uh, anarcho Christian mom. Do you have any closing thoughts on on what you were saying before uh, before we take while Hatting tries to figure this thing out? No, it's. Not really. It's just I almost feel like I've kind of talked myself into the existence of a defensive state, but that that strikes me more as autism than an actual position. It, yeah, I think I think that's your realization of that is part of a is part of the Hoppian grieving. You know, it's you know <laughs> what, what you know you're what you're trying to do is you're you're still trying to work within the framework that's leading you to the to the flawed conclusions. And so like, you know, the, the, the defensive mechanism, well, yeah, like the entire thing is a defensive mechanism. We are in this together, whether we, whether we like it or not. And so like, we're part of the same, you know, societal organism and we have, you know, defense mechanisms, which include, you know, crushing drug dealers and, and, and taxing people in order to pay for all of the things that 
the defense requires. And so um, I'm sure that we will uh, we will have opportunities to further probe this as we go forward. And so, um, Matt, do you want to do you have anything you want to close with? Uh, no, I was going to talk about Russia and um, Africa, but that's probably all. I'll have to save that for next week. Yeah, we'll do we'll do that. You can, and by the way, obviously you can call into the to the public shows with it. But yeah, we can definitely do it here too next week. Um, anybody else? Uh, well, Tony, Dan, anybody? While we wait for Hanning to try to figure out his microphone. Uh, all right, Tony says good night. And so, Hatting, I guess I'm just going to have to talk to you on the uh, on the public show where we use the phones because uh, this is not uh, this is not seen to be happening. And so, thank you, everybody. Sorry, Hatting, that we could not get to you. Hopefully, um, you know, you know, Hatting, if you want, what I'll do is once I close this thing out, I'll stick around. Maybe we could try to troubleshoot your thing so that you have it figured out for next time. And so, it's actually not everybody else managed to figure it out. Um, I understand. I, I'm I'm going to try to work on getting a better software for this feature. I, you know, I'm actually paying too much for this thing probably anyway. And so we could probably work out a better arrangement than the software that we're using for this feature. And so I'll, I, I, it's one of the projects that I have on my, uh, uh, it's one of the projects on my very long to-do list, but maybe I'll try to move that up a notch or two. And try to get something that's a little more, um, a little easier for people to use because you're not the first one to have trouble with this thing. So, I'll try to, I'll see what I can do, and we'll work on that, and we'll keep on working on that and everything else because that's what we do around here. Surreal politics. We're just constantly trying to improve everything, we're trying to improve ourselves, trying to improve our politics, trying to improve the website, trying to improve, you know. What wouldn't we try to improve? Why do we want to let things be static? Why do we want to let things decline? We do not. We want everything to get better and better and better and better. Beginning with you, damn it. So, you know, go to the gym, make a box, read a book, you know. All begins with you, ladies and gentlemen. So, let's make it all better. We'll improve it all. And I wish, thank you so much for joining in. You guys make me better, of course. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I'd be nothing without you. So thank you so much. Good night.